Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Um, so Ben and I yesterday were talking about how uh, you could not pay us enough to go to any of the conventions. Like, it just sounds like a nightmare for a lot of different reasons. Um, Tammy, who's not with us today, at the Dem convention, uh, I was feeling happy about not being at the convention. Then she sent the email saying about uh, being in the room for Michelle Obama's speech. Then I watched it this morning, and now I'm super jealous about not being at the DNC convention. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the How Cozy Is Your Bear edition. I'm Shane Harris of the <laughs> <I'm sorry>. <laughs> That's <laughs> very funny. Oh my god, you have the giggles now. <laughs> we can't even get through the intro. Okay, wow, this is that good. was good. This is, this is a good sign. No, that's for a good sign. That's a really good sign. That was Ben Wittes that you just heard, delighted by my cozy bear. How cozy is your bear? I don't know. How fancy is your bear? <laughs> my bear's pretty fancy. My bear's I do li- pretty cozy. <laughs> I'm not into bears, but when I am, they better be fancy. It's a little, little joke for some people in the audience. Um, yeah, my, my bear feels very cozy. Um, I'm just glad there are no bears in my email. At least I hope there are not this week. How really? Cozy? You don't have like a message from Vlad at friendster.argue? <laughs> would like to have conversation <laughs> about bear. How cozy is your bear? Pretty cozy. Yeah. I would I would rather have a cozy bear than a fancy bear, though. I think, you know, if I could have like a fancy bear during the week and a cozy bear on the weekends... I literally I picture that. bears. My fancy bear is like a top hat. <laughs> my cozy bear is like has a blanket. With a little Russian star on it. <laughs> no, like a sickle. You realize that like a lot of our listeners have no, no idea, idea what we're, we're talking, talking about. Right, okay, right. we're going to fill Let's you tell in. Let's that tell was him. Susan Hennessy. You also heard. Hello, Susan. Hi, Shane. Uh, Tamara Kaufman with us is not with us this week. She's at the DNC convention. Getting hacked by the Russians. Getting hacked by the Russians because the DNC got hacked I bet by the Tammy uses two-factor authentication. Yeah, she probably she does. She seems like the type. She probably does. Yeah, we're going to talk about this on the show this week, and we're also going to take listener questions, uh, which is going to be a lot of fun. Um, why don't we just jump right into this, the big news of the week. So uh, to fill people in, for those who don't know, uh, the Democratic National Committee uh, was hacked. More than 20,000 emails were stolen and then provided to WikiLeaks, which published them last Friday. Um, this hack had already been attributed to two Russian hacker groups dubbed by the firm CrowdStrike, Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear. Um, some people call them APT 28 and 29, which is terribly boring. Boring people so call boring. it that. Boring people call them that. Um, but what is what has come to light uh, this week is that the FBI is investigating this hack, and U.S. officials uh, increasingly in large, larger numbers believe that this was a Russian government-sponsored uh, breach of the DNC and then provision of these emails to WikiLeaks uh, in order to embarrass uh, the Democrats and try and boost Donald Trump. Uh, who, we'll, as we'll get into, maybe uh, has some more than tangential connections uh, 
to the to to to, to, well, to Russia and Moscow and lots of people in Russia. Um, I guess the first impression I had of this, and I would love to sort of kind of get you guys take on where you're coming at this, but you know. We talk a lot about state-sponsored espionage. We talk a lot about political campaigns being vulnerable, think tanks, universities. In that sense, hacking the DNC is not really all that separate or apart from the you know the grand the great tradition of Russian and Chinese hackers trying to get insight about U.S. elected officials and politicians. Um, turning though this into an information operation is really what people I've talked to this week are saying is what distinguishes this, where you start to now use information for the purposes of having political outcomes, which really just distinguishes this event, at least if we want to call it in the cyber era or the area of cyber espionage, um, from anything that we've ever seen. What do you guys think of that? So I think it's true that it's it's unlike things we've seen in the past in terms of state-sponsored actions. Uh, however, I, I do think that there are a lot of examples for um, uh, the consequences of cybersecurity breaches being made manifest through the release of large amounts of information. Um, so we've talked a, a lot for years and years about sort of the existence of this cybersecurity threat, theoretical, uh, you know, threats to critical infrastructure, cyber Pearl Harbor, sort of all of these things. Um, I think what we're coming to learn is that the actual harm here is less dramatic, but a lot more damaging than people might have thought it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we've certainly seen that in uh, sort of the private sector hack, right? So the Ashley Madison data dump, credit card information data dump. Um, now we're seeing the power of uh, information release for allegedly political purposes. Yeah. And do you think it's having an effect? Well, so I, I, I think it certainly initially had an effect. The first day story was all about the contents of the email. Yeah. And they did, you know, provoke the uh, head of the DNC to have to resign. In establishing partic- favoritism towards one candidate. Right, yeah. in, a, in a very embarrassing fashion. Um and uh, I suspect there will be more resignations at the DNC uh, o- over time. Uh, and so in that sense, I, I think, you know, it, it, it clearly shaped things. On the other hand, the story has, I think, pivoted at this point and uh, pivoted to question of foreign state involvement in attempting to influence a U.S. election. I do think it is uh, quite reasonable uh, to distinguish between blaming the foreign state. I mean, you know, of course, uh, Russia wants to steal information and use it for its strategic advantage, just as we do. And I think we shouldn't be too high and mighty uh, uh, about how that's illegitimate. It's something that if, you know, if we had the opportunity uh, to steal Russian, you know, from uh, you know, Russia first or whatever Vladimir Putin's uh, party is and use it for our strategic advantage. I think it's just the GOP now. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we would certainly <laughs> it's do the grand that. old Putin. So I, I, I think, you know, I, I don't actually, I feel about it much the way I feel about the OPM hack. It's not, you know, shame on them for doing it. It's shame on us for letting it happen. Uh, but that said, I, I do think we have... It puts, as Susan wrote yesterday, it it puts the political system in a very weird position, which is how do you respond when 
the Russians are apparently stealing information to advantage one candidate over another. Do you ignore the information? Do you uh, say, well, if the Russians are trying to help Trump, that must be because Trump's, you know, pro-Putin? Like, how do you evaluate that in the context of a U.S. election? And I, I don't think there's an obvious answer to that question. And I think we uh, properly are, are sort of a little bit befuddled as to how to respond to it as a political system. So I think one question that is sort of still unanswered as to whether or not the the big story and I think the more relevant story of the Russian involvement um, overtakes the content of the emails depends on what's coming next, right? right? So we presume there's more coming. Right. We presume there's more coming. And there's a little bit of sort of this threat or intimation that like, oh, the really bad stuff is coming. I don't know that I buy that. Um, I agree that uh, so if everything we see, if they led with their best material and everything that we see from here on out is, uh, you know, of the quality of embarrassing to the DNC, but, you know, kind of not the end of the world, not really all that shocking, then I think the story becomes, you know, Russian involvement and, and we probably don't really go back to the content of the emails. If there is some kind of a bombshell, then I do think that sort of the media will overcome whatever squeamishness there is about the Russian involvement or even the interest and move to the substantive. Do you guys think something worse is coming? So Julian Assange has intimated that there is. Um but he's intimated before that all kinds of bad things are about to happen and they don't necessarily happen, or the release of information fails to live up to maybe what he thought it's it, it sort of damning quality. Um, I presume that there is largely because if you were orchestrating, if you went to the trouble to orchestrate this in such a way that you give it to an organization that's going to publish it, and they're going to do it right before the Democratic National Convention begins, and as you point out, it's sort of it's it's not it's not the worst thing in the world. I mean, look, it's aggravating the hell out of Bernie Sanders supporters, understandably. But like as John Roush was just on the podcast three weeks ago, I mean, you know, we used to have a time where this is exactly what party committees did was you know rallied for one candidate, and a lot of people have been saying that you know Debbie Wasserman Schultz is doing what Reince Priebus should have done with Trump. But once you kind of get over that, it's sort of a moment. And if the Russians really intend to influence the election. It seems to me that, well, then where's the smoking gun? Where's the bombshell? Where's the thing that shows collusion between the Clinton campaign and the DNC? This also makes me wonder, and I've talked to some people about this just over the years, but the sort of, the, the sense of like the, the, the Russian worldview in U.S. national security, it seems to me, is that the Russians have a much more, and I'm generalizing here, but I think you can actually ascribe this to Putin specifically, a much more paranoid conspiratorial view of how the world works and how the United States works against Russia than is real. I mean, they sort of, they see conspiracies everywhere. Um, they, they, you know, they think the United States was behind uh, uh, the coup in Ukraine. I mean, really believe this. Mike McFall, a former ambassador, has talked about this, about having conversations. Mike with... McFall, who endorsed my bout against Putin, by the way. Oh, good. Well, I hope he'd be there. Or did he, he just retweet it and our <clears throat> retweetments endorsements? No, 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 no. He, it's definitely he, an endorsement. He did more than retweeted it. But, you know, McFall has talked about this in the past of almost being baffled by this sort of sense of how the Russians seem to think that, that, that we work. And I think it's there was another scene I remember, I think it was in Days of Fire, Peter Baker's book, but about a conversation that Putin was having with George W. Bush when he was president where he was telling him, 
we know that there's a conspiracy among the chicken parts manufacturers in the United States to ship all of your poisoned chicken to Russia. And Bush looking at him and saying, like, you need to basically never tell this story to anyone, okay? Uh, and I just wonder if maybe there's this sense of, like, the Russians saying, well, we'll leak the emails, and then it will all, it'll, like, they, they, and, then, and then and there'll be this cascade of reactions, and it will go from, like, they're being almost like House of Cards script writers would be. Well, so, I, you know, I think that's possible. I mean, I the fact that Julian Assange says there's more doesn't uh, move me at all. Julian right. Assange is a chaos muppet. And um, and he's he would say I I actually wouldn't trust him to know whether something additional that he had was explosive because his his own mind is so conspiratorial. Um, but I, I I think there's reason to believe that there's probably just numerically more material. Yeah. Because um, it wasn't a huge amount of material. Right. And my guess is that Susan's original point, which is that you lead with your best, is probably right. If there were something truly explosive, um, it would have come out this weekend. And so my guess is we're, what's left is a whole lot of the DNC being the DNC. Uh, and maybe the Clinton Foundation being the Clinton Foundation. Which could, I mean, it, it, to the extent that it becomes a source of embarrassment and also happens to be something that's embarrassing that was done in emails, I mean, this could be something that sticks to Clinton as more, again, part of the same critiques that we've been seeing over and over again. I mean, as an operation, if what you were trying to do was so, you know, disruption within the party or before the convention, that part worked, right? I mean, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who has really been sort of the bane of Bernie Sanders' existence, has to resign over this. It's yeah, embarrassing. The, it's, the Clinton you know, camp doesn't seem all that unhappy well, to see her go. Yeah, they made her honorary chair. <laughs> Which so, I think it's like being special projects coordinator. So here's my question. Is there, um, should we be alarmed by a Russian effort to influence a U.S. election? Or should we just look at this and say, this is the environment in which we live, in which people are, you know, going to steal each other's stuff. You prosecute them when you can. You uh, try to expose it and be transparent when you can't. And part of the operating environment in which we live is that institutions like the DNC are going to have no privacy and no secrecy, and, and including at the hands of foreign actor entities like Russia. And it's not worth being outraged by that. It's just a sort of fact of life. So I don't think there's any point in being morally outraged for much of the reasons you stated earlier, right? Um, it's hard to be all that outraged by things that clearly the United States has engaged in itself, including attempting to influence uh, elections in foreign countries. I, I also think that um, certainly it's descriptively true that there are all kinds of hacks going on uh, among all kinds of nation states. Um, even if we wanted to counter that, we probably couldn't. That said, I don't think that we uh, that this is a moment in which we should just take it, right? This is different. Um, this is having an effect that makes people question the integrity of our system. Um, I think that if you don't choose to respond here prudently, right? I don't. I think you uh, you don't want to overreact, but I think that if you don't respond here. Um, you invite the next escalation and that um, we've seen 
you know, that the Russians, uh, when they are not uh, firmly put in their place by the United States, they get more ambitious and okay, sort of so, creep forward. So what's the, what's the mechanism um, by which you do this? Do you, uh, presumably we have, uh, and I'm not asking you to confirm this, obviously, but presumably we have uh, uh, compromised systems that contain all sorts of embarrassing information about Putin and his clique. Uh, do you do a data dump to some Western-friendly WikiLeaks of, of of such disparaging material? What what's the what's the retaliatory gesture that says to the Russian state, "Hands off our electoral system"? So I don't think you do an in-kind data dump because I, I really think we have strong reasons to not want to normalize or legitimize this particular tactic, not just because um, it has the potential to do a lot of harm, not just because actually maintaining a sphere of privacy for communications is like kind of an important democratic value, um, but also because uh, you could do a lot of damage with these kinds of things, um, and you could do a lot of damage by inserting false material into otherwise real material. Um, so as sort of the future, whatever future material emerges, um, it wouldn't be that difficult to fabricate a, an email that was incendiary, right? And then um, then it sort of, it, it moves out of the realm of, well, you know, sort of accidental over-transparency and, and actually becomes this really pernicious force. Um, so I think it, it's important to... Uh, not engage in conduct that could have that kind of consequence. Um, I think how strong of a reaction we have has to depend on how sure we are, and, and we being the United States government, how prepared the United States government is to come forward and say, you, we're sure it's the Russians. We can't be 100%. They might have used third-party actors. We don't, you know, maybe we can't say how, how coordinated it was or to what level, but we're certain enough. Um, then I think, uh, you know, I think naming and shaming is, uh, is a relatively effective tool, both for minimizing the damage in the United States, um, and also it's embarrassing for the Russians abroad. Um, I, I think that might be enough to have the deterrent effect of, we see you, we know it's you, we're not afraid to say that we know it's you, um, and we're mad and we're going to talk about it. And one of the things that I, I detected in, in talking to people about this and reporting for it this week is that in part of, now, officially the FBI has said they're investigating. They haven't talked about motive, although the White House press secretary was <clears throat> all too eager, it seemed to me, to say, I'm sure the FBI will look into motive. One of the things that's retaliatory in this is I think that U.S. officials are making as clearly as they can and often more clearly on background and off the record that they believe that the Russian government did this because it wants to see Donald Trump specifically elected president. And that this maybe is not so much the signal of like a new normal where we're going to start intervening uh, in U.S. elections, but in this particular incident, Moscow, <clears throat> incident, Moscow thinks that it is in its interest to elect this person. And that is Donald Trump, Manchurian candidate. Well, for real, right? I mean, I mean life has been imitating fiction quite a, a bit too closely for my comfort this election season. Um, and, but we should talk about that, too. I mean, the connections between the Trump campaign and the Russians, are, they're not incidental. I mean, Paul Manafort was a consultant uh, for the deposed Ukrainian president who Moscow thinks that, you know, we overthrew in a coup. Um, and is harboring. And is harboring right now, exactly. I mean, Mike Flynn, 
who is a top national security advisor to Donald Trump, uh, gave a paid speech criticizing U.S. foreign policy in Moscow, sat next to Vladimir Putin at the 10th anniversary celebration of RT, the Kremlin-sponsored media network, which routinely sets out to try and, you know, counter-administration claims on all manner of things related to foreign policy. And on which Julian Assange had a television show. Sure, it had a television show. Um, you know, I think that, you know, people, people I talk to see a real problem in that, that not so much that the Russians would try and do an operation like this, we do this, but... You know, this is what this is what countries do and the kind of games we play, and we do it too. To your point of, I think, Susan, like not wanting to normalize behavior. You know, we also want to reserve the right to do some of these things as well. But it's really troubling that it seems that the Russian government has intervened on behalf of this candidate, and I think that those those ties are something that have to be taken seriously. Well, and you've left out some of the other ties, which is that uh, uh, Trump himself has had significant oh, sure, right. investment in his projects from from Russian actors and has had this weird public bromance with Putin over the course of the campaign. And said last week that he might not intervene if Russia were to attack NATO member countries. Exactly. And so I think when you put it all together, um, you know, the prima facie case that there's some uh, relationship of concern is better, certainly, than, uh, you know, you would think if you said, uh, you know, when you when you add that to the fact that the Russians appear to have tried to attack the computer systems of, of, of his opponent's political party, uh, you do start scratching your head and saying, why exactly does Vladimir Putin want Donald Trump to be president of the United States? So I think there's two questions. Uh, one is what the U.S. government should be saying about motivation, um, and the other is whether or not the rest of us can fairly connect the dots. Um, I think the U.S. government should be really careful here. Um, I don't like Donald Trump. Um, I think he's a real um, you know, threat to national security and, and domestic security um, and uh, you know, would be uh, a, a tragedy to befall this nation if he was elected. Uh, he is still uh, a major party nominee for president. Um, it is still important that we have free and fair elections, um, free from excessive uh, interference that might undermine uh, the legitimacy of the executive branch. So I think that the government, um, and I would expect they would be very careful here, um, they shouldn't say anything uh, except for that, which is they have a factual basis for. And whenever they're talking about motivations, they shouldn't say anything for which they are not prepared to produce the underlying evidence. Um, because there's a lot of interpretation that can go into, you know, if you in intercepted a communication or you saw a letter or whatever sort of you're basing that on. I think whenever it's um, a, a allegation as sort of incendiary as the Russians, you know, Trump is the Russians candidate, like this is this is important enough that it's you have to bring that to the American people. Right, right. I think I think there's really a two-step analysis. The first is does has the FBI and NSA concluded or are they going to conclude that this was a Russian operation against the DNC? And uh, within the universe of Russian operations, how confident are we that it was Russian government sponsored rather than simply, you know, some cozy and fancy bears in Russia, you know, doing their cozy and fancy thing? Um, the... Second question, which is a much, I think, a, mu a, a much more escalatory question, is 
if you conclude that it's a Russian operation, do you conclude that it was for purposes of affecting the U.S. election on behalf of Donald Trump? And that would be a completely explosive thing for the federal government to say. And I agree with you, Susan, that they shouldn't say either of those things unless they're rock solid certain of it. Um, but I also think to the extent that they are rock solid certain of it, there's a duty to the American people to the extent that there is a, you know, let's let me be perfectly McCarthyite about it, a Russian plot to put a particular person in the White House. I think there's, you know, uh, there's some obligation to say that. Yeah. Right. The other thing that I do think is being missed a little bit in this conversation is um, certainly there are a lot of reasons why strategically the Russians would be better positioned if Donald Trump was president. Um, there's also reasons why the Russians really, really hate Hillary Clinton, right? So there's two slightly different sets of motivations that might function in the same direction, um, but are not necessarily the same thing. Um, and that's that Hillary Clinton has had a very contentious relationship with the Russians when she was Secretary of State. Um, she took a very, very strong uh, sort of uh, and direct oppositional uh, approach to that diplomatic relationship. She publicly stated that she thought uh, uh, Russian parliamentary uh, parliamentary uh, elections were rigged. Um, that. Uh, I wouldn't say it led to, but um, following those comments, there were mass protests in Russia um, that Putin has long held uh, Hillary Clinton accountable for. Um, you know, not to mention uh, sort of Hillary Clinton's uh, either hinted or stated policy positions on things like the U.S. intervention role in Syria and elsewhere. Um, so I think that sort of... Uh, Anyone sitting in Russia and anyone sitting in the United States looking at the list of Russian interests and the list of the United States interests could make a pretty compelling case, one, for why there's indications that Donald Trump might be, you know, a friendly ear in the White House. Um, and, and I think there's a potentially far more powerful case for why anybody but Hillary would be a good outcome for them. Right. And there's maybe a sense in that case that there's, this is payback, you know, that this is maybe is the Russians or Putin saying, you know, go get her. I like uh, this, this theory. Like it's all just total personal it's just pettiness. Personal, which would make a lot of sense uh, actually. I mean, given sort of Putin's view of the world and sort of how he sees conduct among nations as relations among leaders. Right. Although which I, it also, is to some extent. I also think <laughs> speaking of chaos Muppets, I mean, Putin, with respect to the U.S., is one, you know, and he uh, thrives on the idea that Russia is ordered and uh, and he can sow chaos in the West. And that's a, you know, he's funded uh, Western European far-right parties, Eastern European far-right parties. I mean, he's definitely got this thing that you can kind of... Uh, keep everybody guessing while you behave with a, you know, with an iron will and a straight mind. Of course, he doesn't fight me, but, but you know, in other areas of, of his life. What a and wimp. He's such a wuss. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's a, from his point of view, making the U.S. electoral system chaotic is probably a good in and of itself. 
Yeah. Like he also has a sort of a strong interest in promoting the narrative of the West as just as corrupt as he is. Exactly. Right. To the extent we're constantly hitting him on, you know, human rights abuses and corruption and interference all over the world. Um, you know, it's uh, it's both convenient and um, sort of entertaining for him to be able to release a set of emails that show that you know, maybe we aren't so pure of heart and mind after all, you know, that there's an, an ugly, you know, realistic side to our politics as well. Yeah, I want to go back just to one thing Ben asked, you know, where you were touching on this question of, or asking the question of if the United States government determines that this was done by the Russians in order to influence the election, does the U.S. have an, an obligation to tell the public that so that they know this? And I would argue that they do. I think people deserve to know that, even though it may look like it is a Democratic administration <clears throat> trying to smear a Republican nominee. But my big question with that is, is that going to matter at all to Trump supporters? And my my barometer for Trump supporters is my father, who is a just a... Your father supports Trump? Oh, big time. Yeah, yeah. I feel like How I'm, did you turn out so I great? Think, I feel like I'm making a confessional right now. That is. <laughs> yeah, this is a big thing. Um, so, And he was here this weekend, and we got into it a lot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's a big, big Trump supporter. And I, and I was trying to convey to him as this story was breaking, and I had to kind of work on it over the weekend. I said, well, doesn't it bother you? that the Russian government, who he still likes to call the communists, because that's just sort of like, you know, that is the, the monolith that they still are in his mind, is potentially interfering with U.S. elections on behalf of this candidate. And does that bother you about the person who you support to be president? And his response was very interesting. It was, well, what does Donald Trump have to do with that? It's not like he told him to do it. He can't stop them from doing it. So I actually don't think that's an unfair response. It's and a, I think sort of... It's a decent of, response. Yeah. I, think the, I think the sort of the counter it's example... It's of it. It's a right, response. I, I, look, uh, there's certainly if Donald Trump is, or, or even his staff is actively cooperating with the Russians, that's an incendiary thing. But look, uh, the Chinese might be looking at some of the statements that Donald Trump has made on trade and all sorts of other stuff and conclude that Hillary Clinton is a more... Uh, uh, beneficial candidate to Chinese interests and that they might want to uh, interfere uh, on her behalf, right? So there's there's a lot of interests that are sort of separate and apart from uh, the individual candidate's will. And, and um, I don't... Uh, I don't think it's fair nor remotely realistic to hold Donald Trump to a higher standard than we would anywhere else. That said, the actual connections he has to Russia is relevant, and the way in which we react to the information Russia leaks, I think it's important to understand why they're doing that. I completely disagree with you both. And uh, as to as, as and you are voting for Donald Trump. As 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 to your dad, Shane, with all due respect. Uh, there's an answer to his question. Look, it's not that Donald Trump is responsible for the activities of the Russian state security services, but you have, but there's a walk like a duck, quacks like a duck, waddles like a duck issue here. You have a candidate who has a long history of doing business with Russian oligarchs, um, who has this weird of public affinity for Vladimir Putin and who Vladimir Putin has a weird public affinity for, who whose big fear in U.S.-Russian relations seems to be that Latvia might not pay its full NATO dues, um, and who's very publicly said that he might not come to the defense of countries that Russia is sitting there licking its chops, getting ready to think about whether to invade. 
Um, and he's done that in the context of hiring a campaign manager who was the paid foreign agent for the dictator of of the the Putin backed dictator of Ukraine, and uh, all of that has happened um, in the context of uh, a. Uh, a campaign in which his opponent, as Susan points out, is someone who has, you know, quite a bit of personal history with Vladimir Putin, who, by the way, detests the current president. And so in that context, you, I think, to say, is it significant, interesting? Should you take it into account when you try to vote, when you decide to vote for Donald Trump, this constellation of facts? I actually think it's pretty powerful. And if you don't think so, let's just change a couple facts about it. What if Donald, if the relationship were between somebody and the Israeli state and you had the exact same, um, uh, you know, constellation of facts, people would be talking about it as, you know, a fifth columnist running for president. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, and I think that, that that's, if my dad is in it, because I raised some of these points, not maybe as quite as eloquently as you, because I was sputtering through much of it. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but you know, if, if his reaction is, you know, to to any extent like like others, I don't know that this is really going to stick. And I wonder if it's also because, even though you know, people might think of Putin and the Russians as the communists, and you know, in these sort of these Cold War holdovers, Putin is an authoritarian, and if you like Trump. It's because you like authoritarian leaders, you know, and that is, and, and in a sense, I think just based on my own conversations, um, they might think like, well, you know, Trump and Putin, oh, well, maybe they should have a mutual affinity. Maybe he sees something we don't. Maybe he'll be able to control them because we'll be able to talk to each other, like, you know, like real men. And there, I, I think there's going to be a sense in which Trump supporters somehow either tell themselves this is not a big deal or kind of spin it into a positive and probably will be, will be convinced that, you know, Everyone's just ignoring the corruption of the DNC to try and smear Donald Trump with these Russia connections. Look, and just a, a final sort of note on to that point, in some ways for all the sort of division and chaos within within parties and the struggle for sort of even understanding what it means to be a progressive or a conservative, like the the clarification of American values really comes in its um, when it's in opposition, right? Um, we are not this. Um, and so I, I think to the extent that um, Trump supporters are going to decide that Russian values are attractive to them, um, that really uh, starts to raise questions about what are the fundamental values, about what it means to be an American, what we care about. Um, that, frankly, in this whole conversation is probably the single most terrifying thing anyone said. Yeah. Um, we're going to move on to our next segment, which is we're going to take some uh, listener questions. You guys reached out to us on Twitter. Thank you very much. Uh, one question, actually, which I'll take first because I think I just want to thank you for asking it, and I think we addressed it, is uh, from Blake at Lock. I hope I'm saying that right. How does the recent DNC hack change the way we look at elections and voting in the future? What should we do and what will we do? I think so, you addressed that. And too, yeah. So one additional point that we haven't talked about is um, to the extent everybody thought that elections were going to be moving to online voting and, you know, online registration. Carve your vote in a stone block. I, I do think that this might be kind of a good warning about why that could be a bad idea. 
Um, okay, so if we answer that question and more, um, this question from John Crooks at One Offbe: uh, Does drones work very well? Why does the Department of Defense still invest heavily? in manned fighter aircraft. So this was an interesting question that got me thinking, actually, about a paper that I wrote uh, for Hoover that Ben got me onto several years ago um, about sort of the future, the, the human-free future of flight. And what was interesting was this idea, to me anyway, that we're basically <clears throat> possibly seeing the last generation of manned aircraft being fielded and that we are going to be moving so much more towards unmanned uh, and, and, and robotics and these kinds of systems I guess, I mean, one reason I would sort of maybe question the premise of the question is we're investing heavily because it's a lot more expensive, but I'm not sure that we're actually putting our resources, like betting on, you know, more F-35s and the like as the future of flight. And I think we are probably investing much more in unmanned systems, and one reason is they're hell of a lot cheaper. Yeah, so I think there's a, there's a few answers to that. One is, look, drones work really well in undefended airspace. And, you know, they work really well in Pakistan and Yemen because Pakistan and Yemen uh, don't have the sort of air defenses or Pakistan doesn't use them uh, and Yemen doesn't have them that uh, could actually shoot them down. Uh, there are, uh, I don't doubt that over a relatively short period of time, you're going to start seeing, uh, much faster, much, uh, um, you know, more, uh, fighter jet and bomber jet like, uh, drones. But right now, drones are relatively slow. They're, uh, relatively noisy. They're relatively, uh, you know, things that you can use only in, in when you have sort of mastery of the skies. And so for right now, they're not an adequate replacement for the sort of thing that you use manned aircraft for. What they're really good for is situations where you uh, want to sit over a long period of time and collect data before you hit a target. They also just, um, generally speaking, don't carry a lot of missiles. And so, you know, if you're trying to do something really heavy duty in terms of, uh, you know, uh, wreaking wrath on a, on a piece of territory, it's good for a few shots, but it's not, you know, it's not what you can do with a, with a big manned aircraft. I do, one thing I do wonder, and I put this more as a question than anything, is, um, whether or not drones are more uh, dual purpose or multi purpose than traditional fighter jets. Um, right? So, m my understanding is the way we sort of typically use uh, drones now is that there's, you know, drones that, bop, that drop payloads, there's drones that conduct surveillance, they're sort of, um, uh, they serve their intended purpose and not other purposes. Um, so to the extent that uh, a pilot in an airplane can do a whole bunch of different things because you just have to tell the pilot to do something different, um, that that might end up being, um, that the, the cost savings um, might be less material. Um, the other thing is that it's hard to move military contracting sort of from off of its path, right? Um, the, sort of the, the fundamental uh, direction is shaped not only by the preference or will of the United States military, but the preference and will of Raytheon and Boeing and all these other places. Um, I, I think it would be not overly cynical to, to question whether or not those interests are better served by producing manned aircraft or unmanned so aircraft. Profit margins on big manned aircraft might be bigger than I small I think drones. it's possible that uh, that's the case. Drones are really the disposable razors of... of, of the Harry's razor. The Harry's <laughs> razor, if you will. 
<laughs> Although, I'm, not, I'm not even going to touch that. No, Harry's more like the stealth drone, right? I mean, it's a little better than the disposable razor, but, you know, it's... it's and it's, if you paid us, we would say you were like a reaper or something. <laughs> sure, or whatever you wanted us to say. Uh, one, one last observation on this that I've always found so interesting is, and in, in in all the reporting I've done on drones, and you talk to pilots frequently, and they will often say... Uh, you'll never replace a human in the cockpit because you'll never get that level of situational awareness and you'll never get that level of reaction, the human being who, who you know, can do the Sully Sullenberger kind of uh, moment of uh, being imaginative enough to figure out a problem and quickly react to a threat. Or maybe just not hit birds. <clears throat> or not hit birds. Um, turns out that's basically not true. Uh, and the person who really has done a lot of the research on that that I found so fascinating was is Missy Cummings at MIT, who is a fighter pilot, or was a fighter pilot. I believe the first F-15 uh, woman pilot. Yes, and one of the first guests on the Lawfare podcast. Yeah, that's right. Um, basically, what she studies is this whole area of human-machine interfaces, and what we'll tell you is, and I don't think she's advocating to get people out of the cockpit, but this idea that human beings can react faster than computers, actually not true. Computers can actually react faster. So it's a sort of an interesting thing to keep in mind. There's also sort of a weird um, counterintuitive principle about um, that there is some benefits to having a pilot in the cockpit in the sense that it uh, really raises the stakes for somebody who wants to, say, shoot that plane down. Mm. Um, I think that's one of the things we saw in Turkey with the Russian pilots. Um, it's relatively low cost politically to go after someone's drone. Sure. Uh, it's like a really, drone, really yeah. big deal um, to kill somebody's pilot. And and there are benefits to Controlling our behavior. Putting your people at risk. That's right. Sorry, guys. Um, here's another question. We can all answer this, but Susan especially will have thoughts on this. Uh, from Chicken James. I love that. At Rich Denim 31. Both well, James. Chicken. Well, Chicken. <laughs> well, Mr. James. Uh, do you have any advice for young people who wish to pursue a career related to the topics that you discuss on your show? And more specifically, do you think that graduate degrees or a PhD is necessary, or is it a matter of simply getting your foot in the door? This is um, Tammy's not here, so it's an amazing opportunity to rag on PhDs <laughs> to the extent anybody felt so inclined. Um, I presume that it's Shane said it's directed at me because I am the young. Um, well, because you have you have a law degree and you worked in true. you've actually you have actively worked in the field of national security as, as opposed to just undermining a, it like you opposed, and promoting it like Ben as, as opposed to being just total posers. Like we just talk. About I'm still it. not sure Shane isn't a spy, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> a lot of people would agree with you. <laughs> um, so, first of all, um, I think that there is a benefit to a great many different types of graduate degrees. Um, if you want to be a lawyer, you have to go to law school. Um, I know less about the importance of um, other types of graduate degrees for entering kind of foreign policy. Um, but I think that uh, you have to uh, be very realistic about wanting to do uh, the profession you're being trained to do. I think a lot of people went to law school thinking they would figure it out there. Um, that's never a good idea. Um, and in terms of breaking into the national security community, um, not literally, guys, uh, but uh, entering the field, uh, you know, I, I, talking to lots of people, um, taking a, a broader definition of what national security means, right? There's lots of agencies that do lots of interesting stuff. Um, and also uh, having a sense that um, – 
what it means to contribute to the mission is not just the uh, ice cream part, as people say. It's the vegetables, too. Um, so I think the people who have the most success breaking into the community and also um, staying and, and developing interesting careers are those that uh, take the view that it's all important and the kind of um, the sexy, cool stuff, is they aren't just there for, for the fun part, but they, they understand that... Um, all of the different parts of the mission are, are really important. Um, yeah, that's my... I would just add to that that, you know, this is an area where uh, the list of things that people do who are involved in it are is incredibly broad. And so, you know, I don't have a graduate degree of any kind, uh, neither does Shane. Uh, Susan has a, has, has, a, has a law degree... Tamara has a PhD, uh, and we all sort of think of each other at some level as colleagues. Um, and that reflects the diversity of tasks. Um, the one thing that I do think everybody in this business has, you know, really does have in common, at least the people who are really doing interesting work, is that they're they're sort of aggressive about carving their own space and, and carve, you know, sort of beating their own way off the path and, and um, getting, getting to interesting places, you know, with a machete if need be. And so what I would say is um, you're going to have to, you know, be aggressive and go out there and, and you know, make, make it possible for yourself to do the things that you want to do. Uh, and to work on the issues that you want to work on. And that's just something, you know, you have to just be aggressive and get done. One piece of agency-specific advice that I've been told, um, somebody who did hiring for the CIA did tell me that the, he hates whenever people say that they've always wanted to work for the CIA oh, yeah. because it just creeps them out that they're like this idea that some like 10-year-old like, has always wanted to work for the CIA. He thinks it's a red flag that they're like unstable. Yeah, so don't say that. Don't say it. Don't, don't say, say that. Don't say that you always wanted to work for the CIA, Are even you? if you did. Are you a believer like me, by the way, Ben, like, as being a defrock journalist, uh, that you don't need a journalism degree to be a journalist and that it's kind of counterproductive? Yeah, I actually – I think being – a journalism degree is not disqualifying by any means, but it is a red flag yeah. of somebody who went yeah. to school rather than doing it. Yeah. I'm um, going to start calling Ben not Dr. Wittes. <laughs> <laughs> How is Dr. Wittes? How is not Dr. Wittes? Uh, thanks for those questions. I also promised that I would read some shout-outs uh, from our iTunes reviews. By the um, way, I just want to say about our iTunes review, I told I saw somebody at a Hoover Book Soiree okay. recently who will, who will go unnamed, and I told him his holy mission was to write an iTunes review that begins with the words, my heart was a cold, charred tinder until I listened to the first episode of Rational wow. Security and then take it from there. So I, I just want to say I'm passing that mission on to all of you. The one who writes the best reviews starting with that line next week will get uh, a special prize. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, I don't see it here this week, so but uh, there have been some great reviews. Thank you. It helps out a lot. Just a couple that I really like and appreciate it. One from B-Lock, who actually asked us a Twitter question. Uh, very interesting educational podcast. As a law student, here you go, just starting school is one of my favorite times of the week. 
when I get to sit down and listen to these four wonderful, intelligent people discuss, debate, Aww. analyze some of the most interesting and complex, complex issues. Uh, well, thank you very much uh, for that. A lot of people say we're funny, which I appreciate. I too. think we're funny. One person said this was uh, from X13X. Think Tank Meeks Cocktail Bar with four overeducated wonks provided you laughter and serious insight in the same digestible-sized audio experience. Excellent. The, the <laughs> accuracy of the description, Think Tank Meeks Cocktail Bar, it's, uh, yeah. is... It's basically a bar in here most weeks. Uh, and then I saw this was one more I really liked uh, very much uh, from one DRWR. Uh, Ratsack populated by people with whom I usually disagree on security matters. Both witnesses, Hennessy, but not so much Harris. <laughs> it's mandatory for me, as is Lawfare blog. They are serious people, well versed in Probably the topic. Putin. I'm like, I'm what he agrees with, or she. I like that. That's what and I'm able saying. to inject humor into a subject that is as dry as a vermouthless martini. Oh, Oof. I appreciate that analogy, and that's a terrible thing. A vermouthless martini. You sound, sir or ma'am, like a expert martini drinker. Did you write you. that review yourself? Um, I could have. And we're going to invite you for a martini. If you want to join us totally. for a martini. Yeah, one DRWR, anytime you want to come on and we'll drink martinis together, that'd be great. Listen to them, they will keep you oppo- your opposing mind sharper, or at least they do mine. Um, thank you very much, uh, guys and gals, for, for those wonderful comments. Uh, keep them coming, please. It really does help us out a lot. I know that we say that, but uh, it's like a great way that it helps surface the podcast in iTunes. So if you really like the podcast and you want others to know about it too, um, keep those reviews coming. Uh, and before we go, we have one quick object lesson from Susan. All right, my object lesson is a tweet from Ben, but that's not the important part. Uh, Tweeting one of my articles, the president of Estonia retweeted it oh. career peak tumas ilvis isn't he Thank your you, digital sir. president he is my digital president and i just want to say that i i uh, i was enraged by what donald trump did uh last week to the baltic states on behalf of my country of digital residents so i was thrilled when my digital president tweeted <laughs> susan's article retweeted my tweet of susan's article and I ben think. is not going to sing my digital, my digital, my digital national anthem. Country, tis yeah. of the it's auto tuned. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions, and you can find our show archive at spaghetti on the wall com. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Uh, please keep asking those questions, and we'll always try and out when we can to take time out to answer some of them. And, and again, thanks for your reviews, and please keep those coming. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Howard. Our music was performed this week by Shane's dad and the Angry Bears. <laughs> angry Bears. He's yeah. a bit of an angry bear, <laughs> that one. <laughs> he really is. Love you, though. He doesn't listen to this podcast, so whatever. <laughs> my mom says she does. But I don't think my dad knows what a podcast is. Yeah. He actually told me the other day that he doesn't really read my stuff. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Shane's a bit dad. of a confessional today. He's like, well, you don't email it to me. I'm like, you're on Facebook. Listeners, I'm going to give Shane a daily hug after this. Com. Don't worry. Oh, damn. I give him a big hug. And that's okay. We love him to death. He's a great guy. He's a big heart. He's a big heart. That's what he is. Yeah, that's where I get it from. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Okay, sure. Um, no, actually, our music was performed this week by Sophia Yan, as it is every week. That's the longest wind-up to get into <laughs> Sophia Yan. Sophia's like, I don't think I need to follow this. <laughs> just don't, just stop mentioning me every week, will you? Go to therapy. Uh, on behalf of my friends Susan Hennessy and Ben Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week, and thanks for listening. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. 